0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in sunny Sydney. It's the summer here, so it really is sunny. And I'm speaking today with uh, Dr. Heather Dichter, who's an associate professor of sports history and sports management at the International Center for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University, and we're here to speak about her new book, Bidding for the 68 Olympic Games, International Sports Cold War Battle with NATO, out from University of Massachusetts Press in 2021. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Heather.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you, Keith.
0: Oh, I'm really uh, enjoying... uh, getting to talk about this book. I I should, before we get started, admit to all the listeners that Heather is a good friend of mine and uh, I've admired her work for a long time. So I was really uh, happy that she agreed to come on and talk about uh, this book. And so I just want to start out by asking uh, Heather, how did you come up with this project? How did you develop this project?
1: So this project was really long in the making. And um, when I did my master's thesis at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I wrote on the All German Olympic team, um, which to me just seemed so strange. You know, as a, as a child of the 1980s, there was a good Germany that you could cheer for at the Olympics and a bad Germany, you know, coming from the, the United States perspective. And to realize that the International Olympic Committee forced the two German states to compete as one team was just crazy to me. And so I had done this master's thesis, and you know, obviously, I was happy with what I did at the time, but it was very much based on um, sport records and and newspapers. You know, it was was a master's thesis. Then I went on and and did my PhD on a a different topic, still related to German sport, but you know, unrelated to, to what I'd done for my masters. And when I left Canada and, and, and came back to the US after my PhD was done. And, and I think it was about, you know, barely a week, week and a half after I had left Canada. I was back down the National Archives in in College Park, Maryland. And I was looking through some records and all of a sudden I I came across this document about NATO talking about the the, the problems of, of German sport and the fall German Olympic team and 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 New, all sorts of stuff with, with German sport. And I thought, wow, you know, back when I was doing my master's thesis or, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, the communist uh, states in Eastern Europe, and especially um, the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, East Germany, were always making these complaints. You know, NATO is the one that's bringing politics into sport. It's it's not us. It's all, it's all the NATO Western states. And, of course, the West just dismissed that as communist propaganda. And all of a sudden, I found this document that actually had all these diplomats talking about German sport. So I decided that I was going to kind of go back to that topic from my master's thesis, but in a different way, you know, and, and an entirely diplomatic aspect to this um, issue of the all-German Olympic team, but really more so all of these diplomatic discussions around it. And so it was kind of that that chance finding of this document, and that was really exciting. And then um, it took a long time to do the research for this book because of all of the different countries I needed to do the research in, and then also moving jobs um, and countries a couple times. Um, So it's definitely been a project that, I guess in many ways, took almost 20 years from when I started my master's to when the book actually came out. There's a good chunk of time doing other projects, though.
0: Well, I mean, among the sports history work that I run into, this book perhaps has one of the most extensive kind of, let's say, source bases. Because I think you looked at archives in about 15, at least 12, maybe more <laughs> countries. So, I mean, can we, I would lo- I mean, there's so many questions I kind of wanted to ask to frame the book. But one of the questions I wanted to ask just kind of a process question is, I think I'd look at that and just be deterred. How was how it, what was like, you know, how was it to figure out, oh, I actually need to look at the archives in Norway and also Canada and the United States and Germany, of course, and France. I mean, so weren't you daunted? Like, what was, you know, was it ever just like, oh, I just have to do this? Or was it like, oh, man, this is tough. I'm, so I just want to know a little bit how you... <laughs>
1: Well, I think I think it was maybe only eight, nine, or ten countries—not not quite as many um, as you had said there. But I guess in in some ways, I had already done that for my my PhD, which had used uh, American, British, French, and German um, collections. Um, you know, government files, um, as well as then some sport collections, which you know did take me to Switzerland and, and a couple other countries. So. I was already used to doing that kind of research, um, and obviously this project w- was ambitious in, in that respect. Um, bringing in Norway, I tried to bring in Belgium. That ended up being a little bit more challenging, but I was in Belgium for NATO's archives as it as it was, and um, and so yeah, it's just a matter of um, budgeting time and and getting the funding to be able to go to all the different places. Um, I guess I I'd, I'd like to think that I'm. Pretty efficient in my time management when I am in the archives, knowing when I only have a few days to photograph everything and process all of those documents later. Um, so it, it is uh, very time consuming. Um, and, and obviously, there's also the the language challenges as well. Um, I, I was lucky to be able to have the opportunity to learn Norwegian um, kind of at the end of my PhD and, and to be able to incorporate Norwegian documents, I think helped me bring out additional aspects that, you know, only English, German and French sources might not otherwise get to and, and really make it a, a truly international history. So I guess I never really thought of it as so daunting. It was just more of the the challenge of when am I going to get to everywhere and, um, you know, organizing all of, all of the documents. You know, the nice thing sometimes is finding the same materials in multiple countries. So, um, you know, it's good. And then sometimes you realize, oh, wait, I already have this document. Um, but <laughs> so having a good organizational system is is helpful along the way as well to, to manage everything. But it was also fun to know that I had to go to all of these places. You know, I, I got to, to go back to, to Norway and, and spend about three weeks um Within the the Norwegian um, various Norwegian archives, which was was really great. Um, going to various French archives, German ones. Um, going to NATO, trying to use the Belgian foreign ministry archives, having the opportunity to use the the Canadian records, um, which was always really funny that I finally was doing Canadian history after I left Canada. So I had to go back to Canada. Uh, to, to conduct the the research at the Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa, but um, I guess I just looked at it as as um, a fun project a fun project to embark on.
0: Yeah, I, um, for me, I would I, I, I've of course visited tons of French archives for my project, and I felt like I went to a lot of archives. And then I'm reading this book, and I'm like, oh, Heather, it got to a lot of archives, <laughs> but. It's good because actually, I mean, I I meant to, I I started that way because it's actually impressive, but I think one of the things that your sources really allow you to do is really reframe the way we understand the Cold War in sport, because typically I think we have kind of, when we look at Cold War sport, there's maybe two stories we tell. We tell the Washington-Moscow axis story or the German-German problem story. Uh, but that's not what you're doing. So, how does your work maybe differ from the typical stories we hear about um, the Moscow boycott, or um, you know, maybe even the work that you did for your masters when you were looking at the the combined German team? So, what what kind of framework are you using to understand Cold War sport um, from a more transnational perspective?
1: Well, I think that's exactly it. It is this. Um, very much this international history, this, this history that kind of is not along one axis or, or, or a second axis. It really was these webs of individuals um, emanating and, and discussions happening in so many different directions. And um, back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, which m- when my book focuses on NATO's headquarters were actually still in Paris. So a lot of conversations were happening in Paris at NATO's headquarters, but then all of those diplomats were corresponding back with their foreign ministries. So back to their capitals in London, in Washington, D.C., Ottawa, Oslo, back to Bonn, um, I mean, and, and the French officials just across the city. And, but then at the same time, because of this legacy of the occupation of Germany, Britain, France, and the United States. Still had um, regular meetings within the German capital in Bonn, and they also still had a presence in Berlin as well with their their military missions still or their missions still in Berlin, and so those three countries were having regular meetings in Bonn and Berlin on their own, and then also in the German capital they would also meet with the German foreign ministry officials. So there's kind of like two sets of meetings happening in Bonn, another set of meetings as needed, you know, at least on this topic in Berlin. So they're corresponding with each other, also writing back to their capitals and also with NATO. So you have these different webs of diplomats all talking. At the same time, the sport officials, which I think from sport history standpoint, we know is always happening. You know, the IOC has its meetings, sometimes in Lausanne, sometimes elsewhere in the world. Um, and then those individuals are corresponding and, and you know, communicating with their own sport officials within their own country, their you know national Olympic committees, other important sport leaders, but then also within the international federations. You know, sometimes those IOC members, like um, Lord uh, Lord Burley, were also you know international federation presidents or you know leaders there. And um, so then there's these communications between the international federations and the IOC, and then within the international federations to their countries and members. And so. There's just these constant webs and and um, of, of lines going in all different directions of people talking and and then those overlaps then within the countries of the diplomats or you know government foreign ministry officials speaking with their sport leaders, be it IOC members, international federation uh, members, or when those countries and NATO countries were hosting sporting events, the individuals who were then organizing and, and running those world championships or European championships. So it's just this constant levels of communication in, in all directions and, and all across, you know, the Western democracies. Um, and, and so it, it really became a, a truly international history and one that, yeah, it, it cannot, you, you can't tell this story just as you know, the issues of the German-German Olympic team. And that, that story has been told um, by other scholars much better than what my master's thesis was. Um, mm-hmm. But it really complicates that story in showing, you know, the agency of so many different players, be it countries as dip, you know, and their diplomats as well as sport leaders, affecting what was happening.
0: Yeah. And we, we've talked a little bit before and I don't want to spoil any things that might be revealed later, but there are good guys and bad guys in some ways in the story, countries that act um, more forthright and, or less forthright with NATO and with their neighbors and with the policies. But but maybe we can get back, uh, we can go back to the 1960s and kind of, um, so in the 1950s, we have this, this, um, this single German team and, that seems to be going okay, although there's there's um, maybe growing pains among, especially the East Germans who are want to use sport more to promote their own national agenda. But all of a sudden, something happens, and it it it's like a, a fire is lit and. The situation becomes extremely political very quickly. So I, I don't want to give away what it is. I want you to tell us about it. But <laughs> so what, what is it that what that leads to this whole conflagration in some ways about about the East German sport?
1: So there's there's two aspects here. The early aspect is um, around the 10th anniversary of East Germany of the GDR existing as a country. So around 1959. East Germany establishes a new flag with the communi- with its communist symbol in the middle of it, of the traditional German black, red, gold flag, and a new national anthem. And these symbols of the country are, um, you know, something that they're hoping to promote both internally, but also use these as, as forms of international recognition. And obviously we know with, with sport, and particularly at the Olympics, but with all international sport really, Flags and anthems are a big part. You know, the flag is is you know the flags of every country participating are usually you know hung around the arena or the venue, and then obviously if the team wins, you know the flag and anthem, the flag is raised and the anthem is played. And so um, East Germany was really hoping that these symbols could be used, particularly within international sport, as a way of gaining de facto re- recognition when the country was not being recognized in more traditional um, formal international settings. And this then becomes an issue for NATO because when NATO accepted West Germany or the Federal Republic of Germany um, in in the mid 50s into its organization, NATO agreed to support Germany's policy of not recognizing East Germany as as a state. And that also meant its symbols, the flag, the anthem, and also the passport to travel on, you know, because that is a, a government document. And so and so this then is why NATO starts paying attention to sport. And it becomes a problem. Um, it starts to grow after, after these, you know, this new flag and this new anthem come into being. But it really becomes a problem after the Berlin Wall um, is erected in August 1961. And while um, East Germany obviously claims it's to protect its borders and citizens, um, you know it—it it was the end of free travel within the city of Berlin. And in response to that, NATO adds um, particularly strong um, travel restrictions on East German citizens across a number of fields, and sport is one of them. And it becomes the most visible and um, kind of lightning rod area out of all the categories because of the visibility of sport, not just, um, you know, in its broad popularity, but then, you know, this is the 1960s, you know, so much of international sport is starting to appear on television, you know, television really grows in the fifties. And then, you know, in the 1960s, we start to get color television expanding around the world. So it's a very visible um, place where this problem of East German recognition comes into play. Um, you know, other individuals across other areas, be it in science and, and and medicine, you know, East German doctors and scientists are also denied travel to other countries, but, you know, the different, you know, metallo- meteorological and other, you know, all forms of science that I don't even know what they do, you know, they're not... Bringing the sympathy and the news stories about them, but the best ski jumper in the world not being able to go to um, one of the most prominent ski jumping events every year on the calendar, the Holmenkollen race in, in Norway, um, the ice hockey team not being able to go to the World Championships in Colorado Springs, this is headline news, and this is something the world can get around. You know, the the communist countries are supporting their their fellow communist state and their athletes and. Who aren't allowed to travel and for the rest of the world you know it's it's bad PR for NATO and so it, it really because of the visibility of sport um, the Berlin wall and these travel restrictions imposed on it really make this such an issue
0: yeah wh- one of the things that your your book really illustrates and from many angles because you're getting a lot of different um, NATO partners, The French, the Americans, the British, but also Norway and Belgium, and um, is that is that there was a kind of NATO policy, and all these different partners were concerned about the legitimization of NATO. Kind of as an institution, but also domestically, and their their opinions were shifting over time. Like you know, at times the French were very like it seems like very strong supporters of the Hallstein doctrine, and then other times they were a little bit like, "Well, let's figure out how we can get around this." <laughs> you know, let's be let's be creative. Um, but um, I, I really was in, intrigued at how this went beyond the kind of typical story of you know the West and the East to show this um, real fracturing throughout each chapter of, of the NATO alliance as each side kind of wanted to legitimate the alliance, saw the value of it in many ways, but also was like, this is making us look like jerks. You know, <laughs> why, are we, why are we doing this? Um, a-
1: absolutely. And I think, you know, sport allowed all of the countries in NATO um, to, to have a real stake in this issue. You know, people have often thought about the u s, France, Britain, and sometimes Germany, kind of but really dominating what decisions nato is is taking, um particularly during the Cold War. But sport really gave the the smaller states within NATO an opportunity for their voice to really be heard and 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 to try to impact um the the policies or changes to the NATO policy. Um you know, Canada, Norway, really do play a strong role in, in these discussions, um, which was great to see and that I was able to find those materials. Um, part of it is because the, those countries both had um, candidates um, in the bidding for the 1968 Winter Olympics. Um, but also, you know, those two were very strong winter sport countries and, and were hosting, um, Norway particularly, hosting quite a lot of, of sporting events. Um, Canada, obviously very strong in, in ice hockey, not, not surprising there. Um, but then all of the other countries too, I mean, because world championships are, are what often got the most um, publicity, but European championships in a lot of sports was where a number of the other countries um, had opportunities as well. You know, Belgium and the Netherlands, Italy, you know, pretty much every NATO state, except for basically Iceland and Turkey We're hosting a European or world championships within the the first half of the 1960s. So it did impact all of them. And this is where the the idea of um, public diplomacy and, and the positive benefit that can come from organizing a sporting event, you know, we talk a lot about that when it comes to the Olympic Games, but it's also world championships. And for some of these smaller states, a European championship, you know, is, is just as exciting and, and gives them this opportunity to put their city and their country, you know, on the map to have that great publicity. And so that's what the expectations were. And then to have an event that's marred by these politics, either with, um, you know, if East Germany is not allowed to attend, and then if a number of of Eastern European communist states withdraw their athletes, the event just isn't what it had been expected. You know, you don't have as many great athletes there, you don't have as many tourists coming to the town. It, it's a real letdown. Um, and in many ways this becomes this like backlash and um, not what was expected with, with hosting these kinds of, of events. And so that's that really bad PR and, and you know, NATO was getting a lot of blame for this. For an organization that already struggled to have a positive image, um, in the sense that a lot of people just thought, you know, we're it's our tax dollars that are going to this. What do we get from this? Um, so it didn't help NATO from a PR perspective. And you know, if, if the idea of hosting a sporting event is going to do great things, and then the sporting event's kind of ruined by politics, or it's not as good as it should have been, um, you know, that got a lot of coverage, and so it was really challenging for a number of states. And, and they were quite vocal within NATO. I mean, these discussions just went week after week. It was kind of like the same discussions and arguments. And, you know, kind of eventually there was some shifting, but it was just, um, it was a lot of talk about the same thing and, and these concerns and, and how it made NATO look and, and what these other countries thought and or the various countries in NATO. And they, they all had an opportunity to really speak up and, on this matter.
0: Yeah, one of the th- parts I really liked um, was that you could see kind of the East Germans as well being very savvy about just provoking this kind of um, media backlash, uh, even when they knew they effectively they didn't have any good athletes to qualify or they would take forever uh, to submit their their TTD uh, requests and things like that, because they knew they'd never get granted. And then they would make a big stink about not being able to go. Um But I'd love, okay I'd love for people who haven't yet read the book, um, I'd love if you could walk us a little bit about walk us through because it's a little bit complicated. What was the process by which an East German athlete might be able to compete in a NATO country? Are they just never allowed to compete or what what are the different kind of pathways that were pursued in this in this period?
1: So it was definitely complicated. Um, So this is a great question. So for an East German citizen, for whatever reason, um, wanting to go to a NATO country, they were required to have a temporary travel document, a TTD, which was issued by um, this legacy of the the occupation. So it was issued by the Allied Travel Office, um, which was the Americans, British and French in Berlin. And they also had to have a visa from the country they were going to. And so this is where kind of a lot of the Western democracy, NATO countries tried to escape blame um, because the countries were saying, well, we won't issue a visa if the East German won't receive a TTD. But the Allied Travel Office was saying, well, we're not going to issue a TTD if the person's not going to receive a visa. So it was an attempt to kind of shift blame all along. Um, but one of the um the, and NATO kind of ch- NATO and the Allied travel office did kind of tighten the rules or relax them at different points over time. Um, but one of the elements was um East Germans could go and participate in sport in um, a NATO country as long as they did not represent an official East German team, the German democratic Republic. So, Club teams going to play you know, club friendlies in, in another country or play in a tournament, but they're representing their club or a city, those athletes were allowed to go. And some of the international federations kind of took the International Olympic Committee's lead and said, you will have to compete as part of an all-German team. This was very few of them, but they, some of them did have that aspect, um, that role from um, for their world championships, for instance. And so Germans going as part of East Germans going as part of an all German Olympic team or all German team would be allowed to go to, to NATO countries. But if they were the East German national team in ice hockey or um, the individuals on the East German national team for skiing or speed skating, they would then be denied those documents. But what became clear after those early denials um, Kind of the the two big events uh, that really um, shook the world, the sport world, and, and made clear to East Germany and, and Eastern Europe that um, this was going to be a problem were World Championships in ice hockey and Alpine skiing in early 1962. So just a few months after the Berlin Wall went up in, in August 1961, and following that, that's when, as you pointed out, the East German athletes sometimes, when they realized, okay, we're not going to receive any documents for this world championship or European championship. So they would not turn in their paperwork until two days before the event started, you know, and they're supposed to fly to the U S for instance, Um, or they would turn in really incomplete and sloppy paperwork so that, it wouldn't be approved because the paperwork wasn't complete and done correctly, but they would, the East Germans could then still blame it on, on the Allied travel office and blame it on the West, even though they didn't do their part correctly, but knowing they were never going to get those, um, necessary travel documents.
0: So, I uh, you bring, you bring up the international sporting organizations and I want to talk about that, but I also want to start to talk about the 68 games. So I don't know how you want to approach it, um, because you kind of do both at the same time in your in your book in an effective way, but it's it's hard because there's a lot of moving pieces at times. So maybe do you want to talk about about the IOC and in Brundage and why the you know, why kind of the single German team doesn't actually work? Or do you want to start talking about the 68 cities? Because the book is really rich and it, it does a lot of things. So I don't I don't know how you want to move forward.
1: Well, I think, you know, that was a, you kind of point out that challenge for me of, of how do I structure the book and, and, and what goes where, um, because so much is happening kind of simultaneously in the various um, different players involved here. Um, so I'm happy to talk about the IOC and, and Brundage and, and Germany before moving to the bids if um, you'd like.
0: I, it's it's up it's up to you. What I you did both at the same time. So I'm just trying. I'm I'm trying to solve the same problem you're, you solved. Um, but I mean, it just it just strikes that getting the kind of IOC perspective might help frame then why the candidate cities did what they did. Because Brundage, for me, there's other bad guys, but Brundage is always the bad guy as well. So. Um, <laughs> It's useful to just get the, the IOC perspective as well to understand then why the cities, why the candidate cities and why the different NATO states do what they do, I think. but
1: Sure. Um, so obviously, yeah. Avery Brundage was, you know, adamant that sport and politics remain separate. And we all know they never have been. Um, and one of the things he was always really proud of with the creation of the All-German Olympic team, and, you know, he, he often would say, you know, like, we've done what the, the politicians and diplomats haven't done. We've gotten Germany to overcome its division, and they compete together at the Olympics. And he framed it really positively. But the reality was, each Olympic Games, it was even more fractured and more fraught and more difficult to, for the Germans to even put together this All-German Olympic team. Um, so that in itself was always complicated, but his efforts of trying to say, you know, there's no politics in sport; um, it shouldn't be there. You know, it's the sporting aspects that matter. Um, and it it wasn't just Germany that was problematic in the in the early 1960s. Obviously, Korea was divided. There was the two China issue. Um, in 1963, we also have the games of the newly emerging forces in Indonesia. And um, other, you know, individual countries might have um, had denied athletes from a different country to, to enter Israel, um, often faced problems um, within um, various uh, Asian and Middle Eastern countries. And so the issue of, of politics and sport was broader. But I think within the West, yes, the German issue was what got the most attention and um, and so, you know, with all of this, um, the IOC is trying to to navigate these problems in the early 1960s in the lead up to the 1964 Olympics, and um, mostly with the lead up to Tokyo, but the Winter Olympics took place um, at the, they started at the very end of January, beginning of February, uh, 1964 in, in Innsbruck, Austria. Um, and so, you know, the IOC was dealing with these problems and and was looking at how does it, resolve these problems. And and so this is where, in in some ways, the IOC, you know, did have meetings with the international federations and asked them, you know, what problems have you had? Which countries have not been able to participate in a sporting event in your sport because of politics and and whatnot? And so the IOC compiled this dossier from all of the international federations, I mean, I actually called a meeting um, in early 1963 with all of the international federations to kind of figure out like, what do we do about this problem of politics infiltrating sport? You know, this is a bad thing. The IOC was trying to do everything it could for sport to be just sport, even though we all know, again, it's never been separate from politics. So um, Avery Brundage very much was concerned with that. and And as an IOC president, um, or as the IOC president, he very much um, got what he wanted in many instances on many issues within the IOC. Um, and and something that um, kind of becomes clear when uh, the French consul general, who had been in Chicago for years, and um, Chicago is Avery Brundage's hometown, the two men had gotten to know each other Um over many years. And and, um, France had actually been bidding for both the summer and winter Olympics in 1968. And after their summer city of Lyon had lost, um, but the winter city for Grenoble was still bidding, that vote came after in this kind of weird quirk of timing. And, you know, the Consul General and, and Avery Brundage sit down for a really long conversation and talk about why Lyon lost to Mexico City and what Grenoble needed to do to win. And And Brundage was very open with him and it was an incredibly long telegram back from Chicago, back to, to Paris. Um, so in many ways, what Avery Brundage wanted, he got within sport.
0: So what is, what is it that the, I mean, you're getting to it, you've gotten to it a little bit, basically the IOC wants to have a kind of free games where athletes can travel from East Germany into a NATO country. Um, and, and that's something that NATO has to deal with. And so maybe you could tell us uh, a little bit. It, you, do, you do this in great uh, detail um, in, in the book. Uh, but tell us a little bit about some of the countries that were up for the summer and winter games and how maybe their, um, their kind of central governments were trying to deal with the local government and also their NATO uh, their NATO affiliates to try to, you know, finagle. I think finagle is the best word, um, you know, a policy that would somehow please Brundage, but also not seem to violate the the Halstein Doctrine, and would somehow also please the more hardline NATO, you know, NATO members. So maybe you can you can trace some of the, some of that out for us.
1: Sure. So obviously, um, this Berlin Wall, the Berlin Wall cut is, um comes into existence, NATO tightens its policies, its travel policies on East Germans. And this becomes clear with a number of sporting events in 1962 and into 1963. And in late 1963, in October 1963, the IOC votes for the summer host for 1968. And they wait until the end of January um, on the eve of the Innsbruck Olympics to, to vote for the Winter Olympic host for 1968. So in amongst all of these sporting events, In NATO countries impacted by politics, we have a number of cities from NATO countries, as well as outside of NATO, vying for these games. So for the Summer Olympics, there's four candidate cities. Um, So from NATO countries, we've got Lyon in France and Detroit, Michigan. Detroit's like the ultimate Olympic loser, bid for the game so many times in a row and never even came close. And then there was also Mexico City, who was the ultimate um, winner. And Buenos Aires, which everyone discounted the Argentine city for, um, you know, it it wasn't really, didn't have a chance. Um, And then from the Winter Games, we have four NATO countries with cities bidding for it. So the U.S. and France um, also had winter cities. Um, So from the U.S., it was Lake Placid, which had hosted the 1932 Winter Olympics. For France, it was Grenoble um, in the Alps. Then um, Canada had Calgary bidding. Um, obviously, Calgary doesn't win until 1988, um, but one of their kind of early bid there. And then um, in Norway, it was Oslo, which had already hosted the 1952 Winter Olympics. Outside of NATO, we had uh, Sion in Switzerland, Lodi in Finland, and Sapporo in uh, Japan. So um, quite a lot of, of candidate cities. and. Um, so the NATO countries were, and, and the NATO diplomats were concerned with what could happen or, you know, what would happen with their bids. Um, but there had kind of always been a loophole around this problem of East Germany and its athletes um, because Italy and the U.S. had, had both hosted um, the 1960 Olympics, um, Squaw Valley in, in California and that area in 1960 Winter Games and um, Italy for, you know, Rome in 1960 Summer Games. Um, and the creation of the All-German Olympic team meant that, you know, it, it kind of negated the, the NATO problem. Um, and then there were also these kind of Olympic identity cards. And so, you know, they're kind of this idea of we'll let them, we'll let the East Germans travel to our country on this Olympic identity card rather than having to, you know, acknowledge their East German passport, for instance. There are kind of ways around it with respect to the Olympics, but East Germany was, you know, really pushing hard to be recognized separately and, and not have to compete on this all-German Olympic team. And, and particularly after the Berlin Wall went up, um, it was really difficult for the all-German Olympic team to be created for 1964. Um, so the, it was really quite challenging from a, a political standpoint. And with all of these problems for all of the World Championships and European Championships in 62 and into 63, the International Olympic Committee then asked every single candidate city bidding for the 1968 Summer Winter Games to provide a, a guarantee from their government that all athletes, coaches, officials, anyone affiliated with the Games, Would be allowed to enter the country freely. And this is when the the NATO diplomats and and the foreign ministers, foreign ministries really get incredibly involved. um, Because you know, they thought at first maybe just the, the bid committees could put that letter forward, and the IOC said, you know, no, it needs to come from your government. It needs to be a government guarantee. And this becomes really difficult because of NATO's non-recognition of East Germany, the travel restrictions in place, and also the IOC is asking these governments to make a guarantee for an event almost five years into the future. Nobody can predict what will happen five years into the future and how the political system might change, particularly how volatile the German German relationship had been, um, or, you know, the different travel restrictions imposed, relaxed, imposed again, five months later. Um, So it was really difficult for them to say a guarantee. And so these diplomats spend weeks wrangling over the exact wording of how they would respond to the International Olympic Committee, while still upholding their NATO agreements, you know, and, and this is where Canada in particular, really comes out and in essence, almost threatens to, to violate NATO agreement because they were just so desperate to host the Olympic Games for the first time. So it became really complex that these cities bidding for the Olympics had to really get this support from their governments and foreign ministries. But NATO wanting to support their cities bid, their country's bids for the Games but without violating these NATO agreements. It was very complicated and difficult for them.
0: Yeah, I loved your discussion of the, the. I mean, because you have the text of the letters and you're like going through, it's not like a fine grain analysis, it's not boring or anything. It's just like actually kind of at times pretty funny analysis. Like when Brundage gets a letter from the French and the, French foreign ministers, like convincing him, well, in French, it's actually it works, you know, if you, <laughs> it's it's a little bit different. Or when you're reading through the Canadian uh, foreign ministers, kind of like back back, um, back channel documents where they're like, well, at first we're going to press for this and then, you know, well, then we'll press for the all German team. And if that doesn't work, we'll ask for the Olympic cards. And then if that doesn't work, well, we'll just completely capitulate to the IOC. Um, you found, you found just like really rich material. So I'm wondering if you can talk us through a little bit about how maybe um, either the, the Canadian um, or maybe the French or even the Detroit, um, you know, bid committees kind of tried to deal with this issue, like how, cause you're, you really, it's really, um, it's really impressive the way in which you triangulate between all these different stakeholders that obviously the bid cities just want Write us a clean letter, Robert Kennedy. You know, <laughs> and <laughs> and the the foreign ministries are concerned about the these NATO policies, and there are some of the NATO countries that are absolutely opposed to any kind of, you know, like how are we being bullied by the IOC? You know, well, we should be. We're NATO. You know, uh, so I it, wonder if you can it, talk us through some of the complicated factors there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, and and the IOC has. Always thought of itself um, with great importance, uh, and 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 especially you know Avery Brundage and, and wanting to, in essence, dictate to diplomats and 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 political leaders. Um, I mean, the number of times that international federation presidents were um, sending telegrams to you know Charles de Gaulle and, and John F. Kennedy uh, and you know the Prime Minister in, in Great Britain and asking them you know like. Ple- you know, you need to let the East German skiers and ice hockey players into your country. You know, they didn't respond to those telegrams. You know, they, they have more important issues to deal with than some athletes. Um, but obviously their foreign ministries were, were dealing with with all of this. And, and it really was complicated. You know, yeah, absolutely. The big cities, the big committees, they, they wanted everything to go their way. They didn't want this problem of, of the East German athletes to impact their ability to, to win the games. Um, and this was something that, that NATO recognized that then, and this is why NATO formed a working group of those four bid countries the US, France, Canada, and Norway so that they were meeting regularly at NATO's headquarters in Paris to discuss the content and, and the wording of these letters because they knew if their letters weren't pretty similar to each other, you know, maintaining that NATO line, that it would hurt one or all of their cities compared to, to the rest. Um, and, you know, the American and, and French media and the American and French, both government officials and, and sport leaders really thought the competition for the 68 Summer Games was between Detroit and Leon. They They discounted Mexico City quite a lot. Um, and, and appeared quite shocked when when Mexico City won, in, and also how how few votes Detroit received. Um, but you know they they knew that they they needed to kind of present this united front. But they were also concerned that if they all sent all four countries, or you know all six cities, if you include the summer and winter cities separately, had the same exact wording that the IOC might also just kind of discount those as well. Um, they didn't want it to be too hard. So it, it was this really difficult negotiation of saying, well, we need to maintain our, our NATO position, but we, we don't want to hurt our bid city. Um, and Detroit was really pushing, probably because they had already bid for the game so many times and not won them, um, was trying to get its letter sent as early as possible um, and to have it. Sent in time for the IOC's executive um, meeting, so that other people would temper um, and minimize kind of Avery Brundage's harsh stance on, on sport and politics. Um, but Detroit didn't want to be the only city to put its letter forward at once. It was like, look, if we if we just have this one letter and it sounds too harsh, the IOC the IOC will say no, and then we'll be out of the running. So Detroit wanted at least another city, and preferably Lyon, because that was its other NATO. Um, competitor for the summer games to put forward its letter at the same time so that the IOC might be like, okay, this isn't just a, a harsh U.S. thing, you know, kind of consider it more favorably. And um, in the other cities, when countries were all hesitant and were like, okay, Detroit, you you go put your letter forward and uh, we'll see how the IOC responds for how we want to write our letters. Um so it really was this like wait and see we don't want to hurt our own city's chances um we'll let Detroit try to take the fall first and and so it really was this this competition and this like national self interest you know to win the right to host the Olympics is coming into conflict with NATO policy and a united NATO front and so it became really difficult Obviously, the big cities want to win and would do anything for it um as we see a bit um with what they were trying to do to win the games from a sports standpoint outside, you know some kind of early forms of not necessarily bribery but corruption uh you know something I've written about elsewhere um but at the same time, you know yeah the the foreign ministries. They recognized the value of hosting the Olympic Games and it back in the 1960s, and they wanted their cities to win. So they didn't want to to hurt their chances by being, you know, straight up uh, admitting, no, we're not going to let in the East Germans. So trying to figure out a way to, you know, change that wording. And, um, you know, one of the countries, you know, wanted to kind of say, well, as long as you still let it be an East German, all German or all German Olympic team, like, sure, that's totally fine. But again, you know, not only could these foreign ministries not predict what their own policies would be five years from then, you know, the IOC might also change its mind as well, too. And they didn't want to put, they knew putting that kind of um, ultimatum on the IOC would not go over well with, with Avery Brundage and the IOC. So it, it really was a challenge for them to, to balance all of these interests and um, still try to not hurt their bid cities.
0: So we, I guess, we kind of get to the point. You've already, you've already kind of um, uh, told us who wins the summer of sixty-eight games, but uh, maybe you can tell us about who wins the winter sixty-eight games too, and assess the importance of these letters and the the kind of fight over the East German travel ban. Because I think you do a good job in the book of kind of making the case for how much the travel ban and the discussion about the travel ban impacted in the decision-making, um, for both games?
1: Sure. So the vote for the summer games happens first, even though the winter games happen earlier in the same year. Um, and so, you know, Mexico city wins over Lyon and Detroit and Buenos Aires, um, for multiple reasons. You know, we don't know why each individual IOC member voted the way they did. Um, you know, many IOC members, you know, liked the idea of, of taking the Olympics to to uh, Latin America, to a Spanish-speaking country. Um, Mexico City had also invited all of the International Olympic <laughs> Committee members to attend the Modern Pentathlon World Championships. You know, basically free trip, come to Mexico City for like a week. And about half the IOC members took up that offer. So they already knew, like, you know what? Mexico City's fun. They can organize a sporting event. Yeah, yeah, let's go there for the Olympics. You know, we'll get at least three weeks there as IOC members for the meetings in advance and, and the games themselves. Um, so there, there were those aspects to it, but then there were some members, and, you know, I think this is one of the things that Avery Brundage hinted at to the, the French Consul General after that vote, um, was the concerns about the NATO restrictions, you know, hurting both Lyon and, and Detroit. So that's some, you know, I mean, obviously, the Eastern European countries were obviously then all voting for Mexico City. Um, So so there were many reasons that factored into it. Um, But then the choice of the summer coast then factors into how our country is going to vote for the the winter games. Um, So obviously, the the NATO travel concerns were still there. um, And there were seven candidate cities for the winter games. Ultimately it was six. Sion withdrew um, about six weeks before the actual vote took place. So the Swiss city never actually was there in the end. Um, but you know, there were there, the travel issue obviously was a concern, but that was four of the six final cities then that the IOC was voting on. So in this case, it wasn't quite as strong of an issue. Um, but obviously, back back then um, a good chunk of the Olympics took place in Europe. If it was not both the summer and winter in the same year, at least one was taking place in in that in Europe, you know, as this kind of the the traditional home of of the Olympic movement. And so with the selection of Mexico City, most everyone figured Calgary and Lake Placid didn't really have a chance. Um, The Canadians thought that because the U.S. didn't win, it still was okay. It still helped Calgary. Um, but there was this sense that it was going to be one of the European cities that would ultimately win. Um, and there was a sense of a bit of sympathy for Grenoble, um, France, that who did actually win. Um, that because Lyon didn't get the summer games, let's give the winter games to France, a bit of a consolation there. Um, but also the French Consul General, in his long conversation with Avery Brundage, um, Got some really good advice on where Grenoble's strengths were, where uh, weaknesses of the other candidate cities were, and some concerns Brundage had with Grenoble's bid. And so, you know, part of this incredibly long telegram back to the French Foreign Ministry is advice on what Grenoble needs to do. Um, and so you know, Grenoble clearly took enough of that advice and was able to um to win that vote. It did go, it did take a few rounds, um, and it did go back and forth. Um, and it, it did look like Grenoble wasn't going to win. But in the end, on the final vote, uh, Grenoble did win in in that vote.
0: So how did, I mean, I, I, I'm conscious we maybe have time for two more questions or so. But I, I want to know, like, how did the French respond to this travel ban then? And how does this travel ban kind of Obviously, um, you know, there's only one Germany now, but does the travel ban last throughout the entirety of the Cold War? Or how does it end, um, you know?
1: So France hosting the 68 Winter Olympics complicates this problem for a bit longer. And, um, you know, and, and by what happens after uh, Grenoble wins, so that vote is taken in early 1964, and um, the all German Olympic team has an incredible amount of problems in in Tokyo. That's in the summer of 1964. And and the East Germans are really advocating. We we want to be fully recognized, we want to be completely separate from, from West Germany, you know, and and really pushes for it. Um Brendage is able to force that discussion to be postponed and doesn't really take place in 1964 at the meetings. Um, but it really comes to it, it comes to a head and, and, and is discussed in, in 1965 when the IOC meets. And the IOC agrees, in um, very complicated uh, negotiations and kind of votes um, to, to fully recognize East Germany completely separately in 1965, um, in part for things that East Germany advocates, but also in part because um, the West German uh, foreign ministry makes a uh, concerted attempt to convince IOC members. Um, uh, you know This is a, a diplomatic goal um, that they're working on and that really upsets the IOC, the sense of sport and politics are separate. You shouldn't be trying to convince us. It was a bit of a backlash to what the, the West Germans were doing, the West German diplomats were doing. Um, so the IOC completely recognizes East Germany separately in 1965. But then there is this problem now that, well, the Winter Games are in France and this is a NATO country. Um, And so over that kind of mid to second part of the the 1960s, um, you know, the recognition is this wall in Berlin is, is not going away. You know, the two German states are clearly needing to coexist. You know, detente really comes in kind of the end of the decade. And what happens in sport is is a bit this opportunity of of preview and early early bit of of detente. Um, But it does cause problems for France as they recognize there are still these NATO um, travel restrictions, although they do get a little bit scaled back throughout the nineteen sixties. Um, but there is still nominally this non recognition of East Germany, and so ultimately. What the IOC and the German Olympic committees kind of negotiate is this like, well, there'll be two separate teams. East German Olympic committee will like create its own teams, but we're still going to make them use this all German Olympic flag, which is the black, red, gold for Germany, but then the Olympic rings in the middle of it. And so it's kind of like this compromise that like, well, in theory, there's two German Olympic teams. But we're going to kind of pretend like it's one team because of these, you know, travel restrictions and, and rules with France and NATO. Um, but this is why, you know, most people kind of just say East Germany had its own team in 1968. But Grenoble makes it a little bit more complex. But then when the IOC meets um, right on the eve of the Mexico City Games in the summer, you know, it becomes you are two separate teams. You, your own flags, uniform, whatever you each want to do, that's fine. Um, in part because they're now not in a NATO country, and also because the next Summer Olympics are in West Germany, and so <laughs> it, it just needs to be uh, separate at that point. And, and it's going to be the German flag that is raised in the closing ceremony when they, you know, in that that passing over of the Olympic flag from Mexico to the next host. So they realize we have to just make this a a final break because of who's hosting the next summer games. Um, So Grenoble kind of prolongs that idea of the all German Olympic team because France is a NATO member um, and is hosting the winter games, but it's, it's, you know, barely in, in name and, and hardly in practice.
0: So in some ways kind of the ultimate irony is that it's the, the West Germans who host the first East German team in the summer games. It's
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, the first time that the East German flag was officially recognized on West German soil was in the 1972 Summer Olympics. You know, it had been basically illegal to to have the East German flag in, in West Germany, and it wasn't supposed to be allowed. So the first time it was actually recognized was at the Olympic Games.
0: Yeah, and I think this is, I mean, as a, I'm a I. This is one of the things that your book does, uh, kind of at the end, which is showing, you know, perhaps that NATO sporting embargo as it starts to weaken is is concomitant with and maybe productive of the politics of detente, and um, so just showing some of more of that richness of the way sport can influence politics and vice versa. Um, I really I really love the book, uh, Heather. It was, it was such a great um, kind of thing for me to pick up. I, I, I should admit, for me, it was a summer read. For everyone else, it's a different time of the year, but I, I enjoyed reading it uh, kind of over the summer and enjoying, enjoying thinking about uh, the Olympics coming up. And I know you've been doing a bunch of interviews about that as well. Uh, but I'm hoping, uh, Heather, you can tell us, I know you have a million irons in every fire but the question I always like to ask is, what can we look forward to um, reading from you next or in what kind of work of yours can we enjoy next? So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what you have planned for the future.
1: Sure. So I think there's a few extra stories that, you know, aren't in the book as, as what happens with all of us, but also ones where I'm I was I'm looking forward to kind of delving into them a bit more. Um, so one is is on the US East German relationship um and, and that change in the 1960s, um, because Toledo, Ohio hosts the wrestling world championships in 1962 and 1966. And we really see that change in policy between this same event in the same city. Um, so I'll be working on in you know, an article there. Um, and I'm also starting to look into a bit more um Sion's withdrawal of its bid in its 1968 Winter bid, um, because this was really the first referendum that killed an Olympic bid, and something we've seen so much of, um, you know, the past ten um, years or so. And um, so I'm interested in in that because it was it was such a late vote. Um, the referendum was in early December 1963, and the vote was at the end of January 1964. Um, so look at at some of that um, Olympic and and Swiss politics. Um, so I'm I'm kind of got a, a few different um, smaller pieces that are will be coming out. I hope um, I'll be working on uh, as I figure out what the next big project will be.
0: Oh, um, I and I and I know you have some an edited volume that you're also working on. You have a lot of things. <laughs> you I don't know how you do it, frankly, but you have a lot on. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I wonder that too, as well. Um, although, you know, the occasional, the, some of the the pieces where the majority of the documents are in English do mean I, I can sometimes get to through those a, a little bit quicker than the ones that do involve four languages. And that, that mindset of having to switch between them, you know, to, to get all the documents about a NATO meeting, uh, you know, constantly switching between the languages to make sure I really understand everything that, that happened at that meeting. Um, it's, It takes time uh, and effort. So, um, yeah, we'll see how everything goes.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking today with Dr. Heather Dichter, Associate Professor of Sports History and Sports Management at the International Center for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University. And we were speaking with Heather about her absolutely fabulous new book out from UMass Press in 2021 entitled. Bidding for the 68 Olympic Games International Sports Cold War Battle with NATO. Thank you very much for joining us, Heather.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And I've been uh, Keith Rathbone coming to you live from Macquarie University, where I'm a senior lecturer in European history and sports history. Thank you all for joining us.